from the worlds of jazz, hip-hop, gospel, politics, sports, fashion, theater, and literature engage in the lively art of conversation. My name is Doris Davenport. I'm contributing host of the Black Muse podcast, and I am so excited to be with you today. I've got a young man that I'm going to introduce to those of you who don't know, but I do know that most of you already know. This is a young man who hails from Chicago, the west side of Chicago, celebrating 40 years as a jazz broadcaster, music producer, and writer. Mark Ruffin, perhaps best known as the program director for the Real Jazz Channel on Sirius XM, stands as one of jazz's unsung heroes. Countless artists owe their career successes and prominence to his tireless efforts, boundless enthusiasm and advocacy, and encyclopedic knowledge of the art form. While he may be best known throughout the nation for his broadcasting, Ruffin has an equally deep resume as a writer with longstanding journalistic and editorial work for Chicago Magazine, Downbeat, Indigo, Chicago Sun-Times, and so much more. We're going to dig deep into everything Mark Ruffin. Welcome to Black Muse, Mr. Ruffin. Wow, I'm, I'm trying hard not to blush, Doris, but thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. I'm so excited to have this conversation, and I know that all of our listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation, because first of all, Black Muse podcast, we are really committed to getting behind the scenes of all this great music that we have. It doesn't matter the genre, whether it's blues or hip hop or jazz, we want people to know who's who behind all the instruments as well. And we all hail from the west side of Chicago. So this makes this show so interesting to our listeners because a lot of our listeners are on the west side of Chicago. Now I understand Mr. Ruffin, first of all, you for being on the program. Can I just say that I am in awe of all that you have done and contributed to our culture. Thank you. Um, thank you, Doris. Um, for a long time, I was just letting, my talent was leading me by my nose and uh, I, I was lucky in a lot of places. Um, and, and, you know, um, success, a lot of success is being ready when opportunity knocks. And, and I've been blessed that way, so thank you. Well, listen, I understand that as a young boy, your father, um, he, was, he was an electrician, um, and he worked in one of the mills, but he also was an entrepreneur. He had, first of all, what he really had was a repair shop, and he sold records. Now, some people went there for the records, and it was a record shop. Others went there to repair their radios and TVs, and it was a repair shop. But for you, it, it just paralleled two things that you fell in love with, engineering and music. What was uh, it like growing up in that store? Um, boy, that was magic. And you know, Doris, you were talking about West Side, and, and I'm so, such a West Side, West Suburban boy. But my dad, my dad had a store first on 15th and Kedzie, uh, no, 15th and Sawyer, I'm sorry, 15th and Sawyer. And then he had a store, 1651 South Pulaski Road. I, I still know the address. But that was only until 64, until we moved to the West Suburbs, to Maywood, mm -hmm. where he also had an electronics store, 703 South Fifth Avenue in Maywood. But he had been out the record business then. My first eight years of my life in that record store were, were so magical. There was so much going on in Chicago. Um, radio was everywhere. 
And, and as you mentioned, my dad had, you know, it was electric electronics, but, but a uh, big record store. And he, that's how he drew people in. And I had a, I was the uh, fifth of six kids and uh, second youngest, as I mentioned. And um, mm -hmm. my older brothers and sisters were into the music and rapping. And, and I was, it was, it was a magical time for, for bonding. And again, all these years later, it really shaped who I, who I became, although I didn't know that at the time. It was just, it was magic. It was music, music was everywhere and all kinds of music back then. Uh, mm -hmm. Like people who remember WVON back in the day, uh, yeah. the radio station, um, at the end of the hour, after all that pop and R&B, they, they would use jazz as fillers. And so there was always a bit of jazz and my mother and my brothers uh, and my mother's brothers all loved jazz. So it was all just, it was all magic to me growing That's up. That's interesting because it sounds like when I hear you say that jazz was used as fillers at that time, it sounds like radio might, was less integrated, less segregated oh, 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 back oh, oh. then. And, and when I say used as fillers, I, it was also a time when jazz musicians had hit records. So, so you could hear jazz in the middle of the day too. Mercy, 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 West Montgomery, mm -hmm. Ramsey, especially Chicago, Ramsey Lewis, all kinds of yeah. folks, Eddie Harris, they had hit songs. It was, it was yeah. possible. So, so jazz also very less integrated. Uh, my mm -hmm. mom, my mom was as big on Frank Sinatra as she was on Dinah Washington and Nancy Wilson and the Temptations, yeah. everything. And you could hear things back to back. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely radio and the music business did not put as many boxes uh, back then, but there were boxes, but just mm -hmm. not as many, right? Just not as many, right. not as many. <laughs> well, you, you think about music and electronics, you know, I wonder what, what was it that became your, your, your muse for writing? So, I mean, I think about, you were a music major when you went to school, correct? Yes, you went I to, started, you, you I started, in, started in music, then you went to radio and TV. Right. But wait, you then became the editor of the Black Student Newspaper. You're, but you're really a writer in disguise. <laughs> but not only that, Southern Illinois tried to make me change my major to English because I kept taking English class. I, I you know, so, I, I, okay, so, so, I mean, I knew the first person I think in my book is Smokey Robinson. Because, I love the man. Oh, oh, well, well, okay, again, I'm in this record store. You talk about what it's like growing up. My sister, mm -hmm. my sister Connie, who I love to death, um, she taught me how to read through learning lyrics, taught mm -hmm. me how to dance through the music. And, and I'm in this record store on the west side of Chicago at a very fruitful time in black music. And, and all these records, we're looking at who, who wrote them. She knew, she taught me, I mean, if you look at any record, I knew that when I was five, whoever wrote the song, <laughs> it, it was under the title. And we kept seeing these, these records with the same people, Curtis Mayfield and Smokey Robinson. Smokey wrote for The Temps, for Miracles, Mary Wells, Akanta, you name it, on Motown, all those people. Mm. Curtis Mayfield in Chicago write for Major Lands, for of the impressions, Jerry Butler, mm. the list is long. Mm. And we kept, and these two guys, Smokey Robinson taught me how to turn a phrase. And I knew at an early age, I want to be like that guy. I want to produce and write. And he mm. was, he was the muse. I mean, it didn't go, I didn't become a big Motown pop producer, but I did end up producing records and writing. And from that time, and, and, and Doris, I remember the first thing I wrote. Again, where it comes from, I don't know. But uh, I remember I saw, uh, I might be dating you, but you may not know this. There's a, there's a uh, program called Father Knows Best. Robert, oh, I used to watch it every wow. night. Wow. Well, one time I, I, didn't like, I didn't like the ending. And uh -huh. I remember being very young and wrote a different ending. That was the first thing I remember that really? I wrote as far as like a story. Right. right. Really? Yeah. So, so I, you were writing way back then. I was pretty young. I was pretty young. Yes. That's pretty amazing. When I think about your career, let's talk about some of the places, the legacies that you have been through in Chicago, from the Chicago Sun-Times, um, WBEZ, Indigo, 
WNUA, the syndicated Ramsey Lewis program. Talk to me. I mean, what is this? There are other people in the world that know jazz, but you seem to snag all the real cushy positions. No, 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 no. Okay, so we're looking at it from a narrow, from a narrow end, okay? But back mm -hmm. then in 1980, in 1980 in Chicago, we, we had like, there was jazz radio everywhere. There was yeah. WBEZ, there was WBEE, uh, uh, and this is pre-NUA. There was jazz mm -hmm. on WXFM, there was jazz on WNIB, a lot of brokered stations. All it, Northwestern did and still has a jazz program on, and it was just jazz on the radio everywhere. You could pick up jazz on other AM stations. The, the, one of the uh, radio stations that influenced me the most was not even in Chicago. It was a station in Rochester, New York, WHAM radio. The, mm. the guy who did it, his name was Harry Abraham. And he mm -hmm. had a program called The Best of All Possible Worlds. And it came mm. on from Rochester, New York and broadcast all over the East Coast of the United States. It started wow. at 10 p.m. at night and went to 5 a.m. in the morning. That's where I first heard Chick Corea. That's where I first heard Gil Scott Heron, who is the yeah. sec who is the second person I think in my book. Okay, I mean I can go. And we're on gonna get to the book, you all. And I can go on and on about um, who I heard on Harry Abraham, combined with all the people, the great DJs in Chicago. Oh Daddy yes. Daily, please. Oh, I you know house Dick music Buckley. DJs, Frankie yeah. Knuckles. Oh no, well, you're no see you're you're a, I'm talking about the seventies, me growing up. Okay. <laughs> That but, was before my time in yes, Chicago. Yes, there was a lot of jazz. So, so to answer your original question, mm -hmm. I was doing a lot, but there were a, a lot of avenues, and there were other people doing. Also in Chicago at the time when I was 40 years ago in the 80s, not only were there all that radio, but the Chicago, the Chicago Defender had a cultural writer who wrote about uh, jazz a lot, Earl Calloway. The Chicago, mm -hmm. the Chicago Tribune had writers, my buddy Neil Tesser, oh no, he wasn't that, um, I can't remember which paper he was, but the Tribune had a jazz writer. The Chicago mm -hmm. Sun-Times for years had a jazz writer, uh, Howard, uh, Lloyd Sachs rather. Now, oh, it was so much work that the Sun-Times had a jazz writer, but it was so much work, I still was able to become a jazz stringer. They were, I could, they were, they were willing to write about jazz back then. So, and, wow. and, and I just created my way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just, so, so there, it wasn't that I was taking everything. There was enough work for everybody. It was so much jazz on the radio back then. Well, but then you outgrew Chicago or did Chicago outgrew you because my homeland started calling you. New York was calling you. And wait a minute, you even took, you, you, you didn't even go in like after you, you rode the wave. So when, when, when Sirius that we all know today, Sirius XM, when they were just a little old Sirius satellite radio, you went in and you helped them get over that. Raise their um raise. You know that that's that's a little oversimplistic, but but let, let's start with the first part of what you said, outgrowing Chicago. Um there was a time in 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 the late nineties, uh I'm I'm sorry, in the early part of this century, where where things started drying up. Oh, I told you those papers, they all cared about jazz. Suddenly they did. Yeah. W B E Z. Um WBEZ had jazz programs, a morning, noon, and night, mixing mm -hmm. with public affairs and news. When they went away, I mean, things started to, things, all those opportunities I had in the 80s in, in the 21st century dried up. I still had, I, I was lucky. I was very lucky, Doris. From 1980 yeah. to 2000, I worked at four radio stations, all jazz radio stations, wow. all in one city. You can't That's even. Like you can't. Twenty-five years. Whoa. It was twenty years. You can't even do that anymore. Okay, and and those stations, WBZ, I started WDCB. I built WDCB. I was mm. there from eighty to eighty-five, and I was at WBEE and of course WNUA. So then, so then when I got fired from WBEZ in two thousand, I you know I I did different things. I had a great syndicated radio show with Neil Tesser. Okay, but got, why did you get fired? 
Because I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I disagreed with program. Okay. Oh, good reason. Yeah. And 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 because I know himself be true. And and also when I got fired, I learned that was my second time I got fired. But I learned um, a lot about a city supporting you or people supporting you if you write. When I got fired, there was an article in the uh, Chicago Sun Times, who I wasn't working for anymore by that time, and and the Chicago Reader because they went and found out why I got fired. And they, mm -hmm. and they did, you know, and, and being right, uh, you can be rewarded. But I got, yeah. you know. Let me ask you, Mark, historically and politically, what happened to jazz in Chicago? I remember the days when even NUA were doing the jazz brunches and, and on Sundays you could look forward to that. We just don't have anything anymore. What happened? <clears throat> what really happened? I mean, it's, it's I could I could write a book on that. Another one. <laughs> I, I, I just think no one would buy it. I don't think anyone would be interested. <clears throat> but but younger people will. But there was a time, I don't know, there was a time I called Thanksgiving weekend of uh, nineteen ninety-six, the day that the jazz the week that the jazz scene shifted in Chicago. Uh, WNUA was riding high. That was the weekend, again, uh, you got to be a kind of a vet to know this, but that was the weekend Art Porter died. Um, and, and that same weekend, longtime program director at WNUA, uh, his name was Lee Hansen, he quit. That was also when I went to, I left NUA, went to WBEZ, and something shifted. And the main thing to me, and, I, and I'll get a lot of feedback for this, but I, I really feel that WNUA never had anyone from Chicago, who was mm -hmm. program director ever in the whole existence? Okay, mm -hmm. and and also when things started to change in the '90s, they didn't follow the kids. The kids went into acid jazz and started mixing hip hop. They stayed. I mean, one of the reasons I was so proud. I mean, I was so glad to leave WNUA that weekend again in '96. Uh, I remember playing the Doobie Brothers and you know real jazz with the Doobie yeah. Brothers. I mean, they, they, they shouldn't have did that. And I think that that helped to kill it. That, that's one of the things, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think when the avant-garde of the South Side started to not be as appreciated at home, also during this time, it also didn't help, you know? So there's a lot of variance of, about the Chicago scene. I could write a book about it. <laughs> and then you went to New York. And, and the, again, that was only luck and being prepared. I, did, <laughs> I never learned why people moved to New York until I was forced to move to New York. I, um, I got the job of my dreams. Uh, mm -hmm. Life can be funny. Life is what happens while you're making plans. John Lennon once said that. Um, I got a job with Oprah in Chicago and I thought I would be with Oprah. My, my kid was uh, high school getting ready to go to college. I said, well, here, I got the college money. I'm going to be with Oprah, please. I'm going to That's right. Her. That's when she started her serious show. That's right. Serious That's right. satellite I, show. I was, on, I was on the original staff of Oprah Radio. And, and a year and a half later, the job of my dreams opens up. But wow. even, while, even while I was at Oprah, so I, you, you got my history here from 2000 to 2006. I freelanced. I was on Channel 11. That's how I won Emmys. I was on, um, and I was freelancing syndicated radio show. Then I got with Oprah. And, and even then I was still doing some, some uh, radio. Mm -hmm. and, and then the job of my dreams, program director, Sirius XM, oh, XM Jazz at the time okay. opened up. And I, I couldn't- You're still down. program director, aren't you? I, it's a job I've had since, 2000, since that time, 2007, yes. That I, is amazing. All right. Now, you know, I've, I've said this a couple of times. I'm moving slowly, but a little faster now toward the book. You, I still say, are a writer in disguise. So yes. I go back every part of your history, whether you were in broadcasting, whether you were in engineering, no matter what you were doing, you were somewhere writing. And hold up your book one more time. Actually, what I'll yeah, this is, this is the book. And um, I'm going to bring it up. Let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a picture of your book cover so we can give it real justice. 
Let's see how I can make this a little smaller. Now, what I want to do is find out from you how, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Can you see the cover? Yes. Who illustrated this book? Oh, a wonderful writer. I'm a wonderful artist in Chicago. In uh, Chicago? Oh, my gosh. It's such a, you talk about an amazing story about how I found this guy. Um, there's, there's a program I support in New York City called Project Art. And what Project Art does is put art, help cities keep art in schools. And in every city, they have a coordinator who works in the program. They not only help keep art in school, but they help artists employ because they need artists in those cities. So I offered a $500 prize to every coordinator in the cities in Project Art. And mm. the one that spoke to me the most, I didn't know this at the time, not only is he from Chicago, mm -hmm. he went to Southern Illinois University. That's amazing. Okay. And then he just got his uh, uh, art master's from Art Institute. And if you go over, over town, see all these great murals, he's the same guy's name is Baril Ali. And the city hired him to do like 15 murals all around town. He's a hot artist. And I just, I stumbled on him. And, and I gave, we worked on the ideas together. I mean, the cover is based on a number of ideas about stories mm -hmm. in the book. There are characters related to the stories in the book, you know, so. Wow. Uh, and and I mean, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is called Bebop Fairy Tales, an historical fiction trilogy on jazz intolerance and baseball. And if jazz you... intolerance and baseball. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now you're gonna have to explain that one. Um really, but you take you do a wonderful job taking very serious issues like race and intolerance, and you approach them, and I want to say this, you approach them in a very serious way, solution-oriented, but you do it in a way that, you know, people say music is, music is the great unifier. And you use jazz and baseball, two great loves in America, to talk about some of the heaviest issues we are grappling with as a country. You, you know, Doris, I'm, I'm a frustrated screenwriter and I grew up in Maywood, Illinois. And it's a, things, things happened in my life that I never saw was the reason I wrote this book until, until after people started interviewing me, until my friend, Terry Lynn Carrington, the Grammy award-winning musician, she read this book and she does the forward in the book. And in one part yes. of the forward, she says, this book makes you see your own, um, your own, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She actually says it in the book. Uh, it, it, and, and please, if you forgive me, I would, I would love to read what Terry says. Uh, yeah, please about, do. About what the, because I love this. I love this. Hold on. It's I'm okay. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Um, here it is. Mm -hmm. The author compels us to look at white privilege from multiple angles and to look at the traumatic malignancy of black hatred. As well, he nudges us to investigate more closely our own biases, explicit, implicit, or internalized, whether it's towards those of another racial identity or the gay and transgender community, all while telling us some pretty impressive facts about legendary jazzers, sportsmen, and the cities they incarnate. Pretty cool. And that's the word I was looking for, internalized. Uh, and more people, again, as I've been interviewed, and, and, and the response from the book has just blown my mind. Um, yeah. I've found that um, it helps people see their own internalized biases, you know, through these crazy stories of mine. Um, and and that, really, that really makes me feel good. But the thing that makes me feel good most is when people say, they're so much fun, too, you know. They're fun, but let's, let's tell people what each part of the trilogy is about. And they are very different. So you look at that last um, one, um, si the, uh, sidewinder. Uh, the Sidewinder. The Sidewinder. And, and, and do you want to go backwards to the front or do you want to go front Which, to the back? Whichever, way, whichever way you want to go. Okay, well, okay I, so let's, 
Let's do Sidewinder. And before we do Sidewinder, I just want to show people, I want people to be able to see something or, or rather, actually, let me do this this way. Let me stop sharing for a moment. We're going to play something for you so that you can understand. Oh, no, we're not. We're going to talk about it first and then we'll bring it back because I just lost it. Sidewinder. It's probably the longest part of the trilogy. It's full of a lot of great, I mean, it's, it's really like a documentary. I mean, <laughs> it really is. But tell everybody what Sidewinder is about. And I'm going to play a little bit of the music. Um, gosh, I can't. It, it's such a sweeping story. Uh, um, I, I, I'm proud of a number of things about the story of the uh, One Night in Miami, the movie. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that frustrate, frustrate me about that movie is you can find out more about what that meeting was about in my story in the little bit it's in my story than the movie. They never got to what the meeting was about, okay? Mm -hmm. um, my story is about, the Sidewinder uh, is about 1964. It's a period between 1964 and 1980. It's the coming of age of two young boys from, the, from Philadelphia. One is a black kid from one side of Philadelphia. The other is a Jewish kid from another side of Philadelphia. And Doris, I was so lucky in the time that this all happened because in uh, August 29th, 1964, there was a riot in Philadelphia and it was because the policeman beat up a black woman on the street. I mean, you know. <laughs> Here okay. we are. Yes, yes. So my story starts two weeks after that riot when the Philadelphia baseball team was the hottest thing in the world, okay? And so this black kid loved one, one guy, Richie Allen, he was a Chicago White Sox for a while, just passed mm -hmm. away. In fact, I dedicate yeah, the story to, to, to him. Uh, and, and, and the white kid was into love with Johnny Callison, who later on became a former Cub. But, um, and, and, and the black kid played baseball during the summer, and he also had a chance to see Lee Morgan the great trumpeter practice every day. And so, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to give too much away, but, but the story is about a number of things, including the history of the song, The Sidewinder. It's an amazing right. thing what happened to that song. The very next year after it came out in 65, it was used mm -hmm. by the Chrysler Corporation to introduce America, the charger. The music they used was The Sidewinder. So I incorporate those things. Also mm -hmm. 1964, between 1963, a few months before my story starts, in 1965, President Kennedy was shot, uh, Malcolm X was shot, Sam Cooke was shot, Dr. King won the uh, um, Nobel, Peace, Nobel Prize. Peace Prize, Nelson Mandela was put in jail, the United yeah. States attacked Black students in Panama. Uh, the, the list was incredible what happened. And mm. again, I incorporate as much as that into, there, there's so much to learn. and. But it's also a giant love letter to Philadelphia, to the R&B scene in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. to the jazz scene in Philadelphia, and even the classical scene. I mean, if you, wow. if you, if you look at the, uh, the cover of the book, again, there's many hints. There's a Japanese violin player. Uh, people, and people love the characters. Oh, let's look at that again, really. If, if, there's, if, there's a, if there's, see the woman playing violin, that's, that's my girl. She is, she is something. But, but I, had, I had one of my friends, Aaron Cohen, people may know Aaron Cohen. He wrote the, the great book uh, about R&B just last year. But <laughs> he, he wrote oh, yeah, me, yeah. He, he, said, he said, man, bless you for giving the Jewish guy a hot, a hot young girl. <laughs> and I did see his book because Quincy Jones made a comment about his book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, mm -hmm. and for my book to be, I mean, I won two Quill, Feather Quill Book Awards and the Jazz um, Journalists Association has it up for Book of the Year. To be accepted by those folks, it just blow me away. And again, Doris, what makes me happy is that um, people say it's a lot of fun and that mm -hmm. it, 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 and it changes them. I mean, it, it, it makes them see different things, you know? And what about that? What about the second? Um, uh, Want to go over the, the characters? second part of the book? Let's, yeah, let's, and let's do Round Midnight, because you know, Round Midnight, that's a that's a doozy right there now. Okay, let me let me talk about some of the characters on the cover. Okay. okay. Uh the first story 
is, is about two Chicagoans uh, stranded in New Orleans for different reasons. And the guy blowing the sax, he represents Gene Ammons, who is in, who, in fact, the, the first line of the book uh, of, of the stories uh, is, I'm sorry, it says, liberty was something Gene Ammons searched for his entire life. That was, that's the opening line. So that represents Gene Ammons, who, mm -hmm. I, I use a dichotomy a lot in these stories. So Gene uh -huh. Ammons is a, is a black guy from the south side of Chicago who runs into a white guy from the north side of Chicago, Bob Fosse, the white guy dancing in the middle. That's Bob Fosse of Chicago fame and, and uh, damn Yankees. Right. And yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, yeah. yes. So it's a story about how they met in New Orleans and this wild people, people love that story. I mean, I can't tell you enough what people tell me. Man, that's a wild. And again, they love the female characters, Terry Lynn Carrington included. Uh, right. You know, they, they love the characters. Muhammad, that's supposed to be Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Again, they're part of what happened in 1964. Why, right. why, why Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke uh, uh, were all in that room? It's amazing. The, the football player there, he's a Cleveland Brown football player uh, from the really? 1964 Browns. Yes, he's actually a, a, a friend of mine. And why he's there, I mean, I, I, again, I wouldn't spoil Man, it. Man, my Aunt her. Ruby would love that. She lived <laughs> uh, in Cleveland. My it, Aunt Ruby lived in Cleveland. If you're a baseball fan, well, Cleveland people would really love. love her Browns. The, 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 okay, right. So, so while my book, while the Sidewinder is about the 64 Phillies, it's also about the 64 Browns, which is why there's a Cleveland Brown player on the front. Again, Ooh. you have to, I wouldn't spoil that for the world, okay? Yeah. In the back, there's the, uh, to the top left, there's the guy with the baseball bat holding it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That, that represents anybody who saw the movie 42, Jackie Robinson, the Philadelphia Phillies, again, I'm talking Philadelphia, that was, mm -hmm. they were the ones who got on top of the dugout and, and try to shoot Bob, uh, Jackie Robinson like a, with their bats. Yeah. They were, so that, that represents Philadelphia too. And, and then the middle story is called Round Midnight with the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, a lot of people, that story is, yeah. is amazing. So you see the Klansman, he's on, in the right. You see the yeah. person with the piano in the back. And that story is about uh, a, a white guy, in his in his 30s in uh, a town called Enterprise, Mississippi in late 1950s. This guy mm -hmm. has been unsure of his sexuality his whole life and mm -hmm. was, was uh, uh, teased and, and uh, abused as a kid, uh, bullied by the kids, you know, uh, as a mm -hmm. sissy. And, and his mm -hmm. father was a sadistic former minor league baseball player who taught this kid, he didn't want an effeminate son, he taught him one thing, how to hit a baseball. Through a, through a fluke, he became a baseball hero. And through that same fluke, he got a job in Enterprise, Mississippi, his hometown at the bank, which is where we meet him. Um, through, through, they send him to New York. In New York, he, he sees Thelonious Monk one night. And Thelonious Monk changes his life. He is seduced by a black man who a lot of people say is, I mean, I mean you'll read it any, in any I hate to give it up, but I, I thought I was hiding something. And all the critics like, and the Jimmy Baldwin character, I'm like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess I made it really obvious. And this guy seduces him and teaches him about blackness, about uh, uh, sexuality, him being gay. He, he mm -hmm. loses his virginity. And then the guy realized he can't send him back down to Enterprise, Mississippi like that. In fact, in New York, he could have got killed in the late 50s. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so so he said, tells him things to do, and everything's cool. Everything's cool until the records he ordered, the Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk records, come to his house, and that eventually leads to the Ku Klux Klan burning his house. Yeah, don't don't give that a well. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 but that's an it's 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 how it happens though. Right. I mean, right. th that's the story, and people don't want to miss that because it really, really is. Now, I'm not sure if the first one is my is the Saturday Night Fish Fry is my favorite or not. I think I just love. We grew up with fish fries, but this <laughs> one takes place in New Orleans. So yes. now, tell us about this one. Okay, so so Saturday Night Fish Fry. Yeah, yeah. Every song you may have noticed, every um, 
story is named after a famous song, the Sidewinder, Lee Morgan song, Round Midnight with the Ku Klux Klan, obviously Thelonious Monk. Uh, first story, it's called Saturday Night Fish Fry. It is actually, if you know the song by Louis Jordan, it's actually part of the song embedded into the story. There's, in the Saturday Night Fish Fry, uh, what happens is the Leo, Louis Jordan goes to a party and it's raided, he gets arrested. There's a line in the story said, come in, little miss, come in, please. I mean, again, if you know the record, it's embedded, but it's just one of the subplots of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, this, the story, again, I mentioned earlier, it's about Gene Ammons uh, looking for liberty in New Orleans. He was mm -hmm. stranded there by Billy Eckstein and that famous bebop band. Uh, him and Mr. Eckstein didn't get along very well. And Gene and um, Bob Fosse was there because he was on uh, leave from the Navy. Again, it's historical fiction. So, mm -hmm. so all the facts are right. It's just the story I made up around it. Like Bob Fosse was a child star on WGN radio. He used to get yeah. picked up and stuff. He got into the Navy as special, in special services. His station chief in special services was Joe Papp, the famous producer and director. That's how he met. I mean, so I, and, and Gene Ammons, his father was one of the first international jazz stars. He was in Billy Eckstein's band with Dexter Gordon. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, so I just. Now for the local listeners, where did Doc Rivers fit into all this? That, well, no, Doc Rivers doesn't fit into any of this. I, <laughs> go ahead, I'm sorry. Wasn't there, weren't there, didn't Doc Rivers either bring two people together or, no? No, Did I just I don't, make that up? Yeah, I don't know where you're going. Doc. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. That was part of our earlier conversation. Yeah, yeah, no. Doc, Doc Rivers. I won't hit him into that. Doc Rivers, where, where we were talking earlier about Doc Rivers is, again, people, I began to understand why I wrote this book, why I think is intolerance is stupid. And recently, what you and I were talking about was Doc Rivers was recently on in national news uh, saying, you know, why do we continue to love this place when this place doesn't love us back? And Doc okay. Rivers and I, we come from the same place, Maywood, mm -hmm. Illinois. It, it, there's a lot of things that happen. It's, it's so incredible that Fred Hampton just won this Oscar. There's a new book out by a guy named Cox, I can't remember his first name, called Curious Proviso. So many incredible things happen to the people at Proviso East and Maywood from the time Fred Hampton started the uprising, prom uprising, which is like late 60s. In 69, mm -hmm. Proviso East won the uh, basketball championship with Jim Brewer, future NBA great. And from that time forward, and I hate to say this, it's so, so funny I can say this comfortably now, but marijuana and basketball brought the white and black community together in Maywood so incredibly during this time. This was 69 when we, they won the channel, the championship. In 74, my class, we won it again. And then, and then there was a time when Glenn, Glenn Rivers, Doc Rivers was there. They won it two years in a row. There was a mm -hmm. time when there was always an NBA player from Maywood, from Proviso East, and that basketball for a minute held that community where the black and white folks got along. Doc Rivers' father was uh, not only a cop, he owned the mm -hmm. hippest record store in Maywood called Nation right, Time Nation Records. Time. And, mm -hmm. and, and they brought the community together. We knew the black, we knew the uh, black cops and the white cops. We knew their kids, their kids knew us, and just for a time. And then Proviso East also went and hired some incredible teachers, one who Oak Park people know very well, Doug Dykler. He he hosts oh, yeah, um, yeah. he hosts movie programs. And well, Doug Dykler was a teacher at Proviso East. Right, right when we were entering in the early 70s with a lot of hippies, they sold us this pie in the sky about, you know, kumbaya and the world is great, you know. And it's only when we got out in the world we found out it wasn't, which again, I found out through psychiatry and people interviewing me like you. That's why I wrote this book, because, because I want what Mr. Deichler and all my yeah. teachers and the way we were with basketball and having fun and knowing each other. And, and I just think intolerance is stupid. It is. Now you have kids that came up through that system. Didn't one of your Ooh. kids come up through that manufacturing sports system there? My, my kids are, I, I have Superman for kids. But yes, my youngest, <laughs> my youngest um, was born in 1991. 
mm-hmm. the Bulls were crazy. Maywood was crazy with basketball. And, mm-hmm. and, and he told me at six years old that he wanted to be the general manager of the Chicago Bulls. I told, really? him, I told him the same thing I told his, his rocket scientist brother, his brother, the rocket scientist. Man, you gotta mm-hmm. be really good at math and science to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and in essence, he believed me. And um, <laughs> long story short, he had, he had an incredible um, education career. He was, he was in that first pilot class at uh, Proviso Math and Science Academy, that beautiful building on the highway in, in, in Maywood. And then he went yes. to El- Illinois Math and Science Academy and he went to the sports management program and got hired at the NBA. He was at the mm-hmm. NBA for five years. It's, it's an incredible story, just never wager, wavered. And uh, was at the NBA for a number of years. If you're an NBA fan, uh, NBA went, they had the uh, D League. Uh, they changed it to the G League with Gatorade. My kid was like second or third in command of marketing with that. And then he left the NBA and now works for the Creative Arts Agency, CAA. Uh, still sports related, sports digital marketing is, is what he's doing, but basketball, it, and, and again, it stems from an incredible okay. time in Maywood. Well, may, people listening to this here, our local folks are going to love it. We're trying to really create invisible borders with our neighbors, Maywood being one of them, and we want some unification here. We see so much lack in a lot of areas like Maywood, and we can help provide resources. We can help direct resources. So we really are trying to, and, and, and maybe if we introduce a little jazz, it could happen a little sooner. Um, <laughs> but now ask you something, even if I was perusing the book, preparing for the interview, conducting my research, there's this, there's this, perceived contradiction that I'm still having a problem reconciling. So I look at um, this whole issue of race and intolerance that we're dealing with. I look at jazz as truly a unifier, as a lot of music is. Baseball is definitely one of those sports. When I grew up, there was only one sport that you were ever going to see on the TV, and that was baseball. My father didn't watch football, and he didn't watch basketball. Baseball, and that's the only sport we ever went to visit. However, baseball in the United States is one of the most segregated sports there is. In fact, there was your your beloved Cubbies. um, What's the guy's name? um, Adam Jones, I think it is, who spoke out about when, when, when Tim Anderson, a black guy with the socks, used the N-word because he was hit and then he got suspended and um, they came out and, 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 and this is, I want to read this to you because this is beloved baseball talk. He said, um, in a game, he said, dear white, this, now this one is Micah Johnson, former White Sox infielder. He tweeted when this happened, Dear white people offended by Tim Anderson using the N-word, it's not your job to police how black people use it. In a game where failure is king and frustration is abundant, suspending people for inappropriate language will leave you with empty benches. Suspending one of your few black players for language after getting hit will leave you with white benches. So how can we get baseball to be more integrated to, to, to be more diverse, yeah. to have more equity. <laughs> um, Doris, this is so funny because, um, again, the subtitle of my book, A Historical Fiction Trilogy on Jazz, Intolerance, and Baseball. Let, let's, let's, let's stop in 1980, the okay. year I started in radio. Let's stop there and go back. At that time, jazz, and baseball were leading the civil rights movement in integrating America. It was, it was uh, jazz that first integrated. We had to fight uh, white and black musicians playing together as far back as the 20s. And jazz, and jazz, I like to say now, jazz doesn't discriminate against where you're from, what your political situation is, who you are. Jazz, you know, and it never did. We fought that fight with Billie Holiday. Benny Goodman fought that fight 
long before, you know, it became, I mean, seeing black and white folks on stage in jazz happened long before it happened anywhere else, long, okay? Baseball, black folks loved baseball so much, we had our own league. We're like, forget y'all then, okay? See ya, okay? And, and, and then they, they found ways to appropriate and come in and, 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 and you know, let us in. And then we started, I mean, the 60s, the list of great baseball players, black yeah. baseball players go on and on and on. I think what happened uh, as the 80s, 90s, now let's go back to 1980. Basketball came in, you know, and then the, and then, then the NFL that had so, NFL has so many, uh, uh, how can I say this? They, they were, they were like, they, they were destined to succeed because so many people were greasing the skids for the NFL. But mm -hmm. basketball and soccer are very cheap, okay? And baseball started losing it. And then baseball started, you know, going, getting to the Latin players and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and the baseball league putting their resources there instead of yeah. in neighborhoods where the NBA started, you know? And then, I mean, soccer is just an out, outgrowth, I think, of our our cultural expansion. But in any case, if you go to any neighborhood today, basketball and soccer are cheap. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think today that's why it's hard for young black men to, to come into baseball um, because the opportunities are so abundant in basketball and now growing in soccer. That's just my opinion. What are your thoughts about the state of affairs of the world today as it relates to um, diversity and equity uh, and intolerance. I'm a jazz DJ. In fact, I'm on today. I'm, today, I, I am on playing jazz on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> you go around the world, interview it, in the studio, out of the studio, interviewing the great. <laughs> You're the great interviewing the greats, and you all talk about these things. What's the pulse? What's your read? What are people thinking? in the world of art, performing that, art? Um, I, I, I think people are looking forward to the roaring 20s. Mm. I, think, I think a lot of people are hoping that history in some ways repeats itself from 100 years ago when we had uh, a pandemic and, and our economy and everything grew like crazy. We just mm. hope we don't have the crash in the 30s like they did back then. But yeah. um, I, I think musicians and artisans of all type found a new freedom during this time. And I think we're gonna take advantage of that freedom and keep it rolling. And that, and that stems to white folks uh, finding out, it, it's like a light went on and, and a lot of white people said, oh, wow, that's been going on in the black community. That ain't right. That, you know, it's like, it's like that couldn't be seen before. And I think that's gonna lead to you know, change. And I think again, musicians and artisans, especially jazz. Here, here's, here's what I think, and this is my standard definition. Jazz is a living organism. It will absorb the time it is in, so the time that's coming, it will absorb the time it's in, then it will spit it back at those people, wherever those people may be in those different places, which is how come jazz in South Africa sounds different than jazz in what's going on in Los Angeles now, which is how come it sounds different in Estonia of all places than it does in what's going on in London. And I think the, all the unrest and whatever can be, uh, whatever peace we can reach will come out through the music. Mm -hmm. It will have to. It will have to come out through the music. But, that but, is the, for but, sure. but the musicians, but we're not, but they're not going to change anything. You still take the people and the politician. You ask me about the artists. Mm -hmm. we still, we, I think, I think it's going to be, I think you're going to hear a lot of that, especially in the, I'm, you know, they say jazz is dead every few years. Jazz never will die uh, mm. for the reason I just said, it's a living organism. And all these mm -hmm. new young people uh, mixing hip hop and mixing and going back to old music and bringing it forward is proof of that. And um, I think it's exciting. We're gonna take a quick break. 
My name is Doris Davenport. We are listening to the Black Muse podcast, and my guest is Mark Ruffin, the jazz aficionado of Sirius XM Real Jazz. We're going to be coming back to wind down and close out the segment, but first, we're going to take a very short break. I want to talk to you about our producers. Chicago West Community Music Center was formed to provide high quality music instruction and community performances to reduce the music related achievement gap between minority and non-minority students and between economically disadvantaged students and their more advantaged peers. We build community through music education and music builds the future. Our mission to enhance, just one moment, let me Hang on here for a minute. I realize you're not you're you're not able to see what I'm showing you. Yes, I can. Yes, I did. Oh, you did. Yes. Okay. All right. We build community through music education, and music builds the future. Our mission to enhance families and community through music. Our vision to see an ongoing improvement in the economic, intellectual, and social condition of the West Side communities within and nearby Chicago through education and training in the arts. Our impact to stimulate the personal and educational growth of the young people in our arts programs so their full potential is within reach. Known as the music school where West Side youth become global citizens, the Chicago West Community Music Center delivers high quality contemporary music instruction to underserved youth across the Chicago area. For more than 20 years, the center's music programs have enriched young lives while strengthening bonds within communities. The rigorous program curriculum prepares students to play, read, learn theory, and attend master class as preparation to move from private lessons to performing in its community orchestra. The center affiliated with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's African-American Network offers lessons and performance opportunities to over a thousand students annually in classical, jazz, blues, and other genres. The long-term partnership between CWCMC and the Berklee College of Music in Boston allows students to participate in the Berkeley City Music Pulse program. This cutting edge curriculum centered around present day music styles and instruments that youth tend to select while developing theoretical listening, improvisational and performance skills, qualifying students are recommended for scholarships to attend the university. As part of its innovative international exchange program, CWCMC students have had the rare opportunity to perform and experience the local culture in Sao Paulo, Shanghai, and Paris. Log on to the website, www.cwcmc.org. I know what you're asking yourself. What can I do to engage with this awesome organization? Read all about the programs and our fantastic founders, Howard and Darlene Sandifer. Your donation supports our efforts to provide the availability of quality music education to underserved youth on Chicago's West Side and beyond, as well as to strengthen young lives, expand opportunity, and build more vibrant, unified communities. And now, let's get back to our program, the Black Youth Podcast. Our guest is Chicago's own. Mark Ruffin. Doris, before you go on, I got to say, um, the Chicago West um, Community, music, music Center. Community Music Center, I remember when Mr. Sandifer came to me, it, gosh, it has to be 25 years ago. Probably. For him, for him to have and keep that vision, man, those are the kind of folks that make your heart Sing right. and know the world goes around. That I'm, I'm just incredibly proud that that he he kept that vision going. He's a visionary. I mean, I'm so proud to be a part of this project, and 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 it really is just amazing what he and his wife Darlene are doing. And of course, Clarence Waldron, 
um, and David Houston. Uh, Clarence and I go way back from our days at Johnson Publishing Company. Clarence and I go way back, please. Yes. That's why you're here. And uh, of course, we, we just have this beautiful friendship, as you see, the circles there just keep intertwining and it's just beautiful. How do you keep your work-life balance besides the fact that you're a newlywed? Newly, newlywed is relative five years for uh, people. You're a newlywed in yeah. a pandemic, you're a newlywed. <laughs> yes, people, people say we're pretty sick actually. Um, we're, oh, oh, what, what's the term? We're uh, nauseatingly happy, okay? Um, um, it's hard, I'm, it's hard to balance. Um, yeah. It's hard um, that the, I'm a frustrated screenwriter really and um, I started this book 17 years ago. And when I look back on my life, a huge portion of the beginning of that book was done when I was single. Okay. When, when I was, when I, I didn't have, it's hard to balance, it's hard to balance uh, work life and um, creative work life and, and, and with, with your personal life, especially if the person doesn't understand how creativity works because it doesn't spark. It's not like nine to five, you can make it, although <laughs> it happens. Um, but um, it, it's hard sometimes, it's hard. Yeah. And, I, and I'm a workaholic, so I know confess, confess. I did the math when you say 17 years, you know, and I wonder what keeps you motivated. First of all, I think it was God who really, you know, kept you at it for 17 years. Because when you talk about what was happening at the time that you were writing these stories, and they were formulating in your mind and look at where you're you're publishing it now and look what's happening in the world now it's just so relative Woo! that now that i was i i cannot explain how lucky i was i don't i don't believe i would have won those awards gotten the attention uh if had it not been for the times either yeah. now now as far as uh motivating and writing the book <clears throat> we I, as I mentioned, I'm a frustrated screenwriter. I started, I fell in love. I was at WNUA, halfway into my career, radio career. And again, we talked about my, my life. I was born in a record store practically. Music's been around me. It's always been by osmosis. I said earlier, my talent was leading me by my nose for many, many years, okay? I didn't really learn what I really wanted to do until I was a grown man and had family and, you know, responsibilities and most important, a highly creative and nice job. Okay. Um, and, 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 and the screenwriting bug hit me hard. I took three years to teach myself. I did a lot of crazy things to teach myself. Then I fell in love with a, with an incredible group of, of, of journalists from Chicago magazine, playboy tribune, the reader, our leader was a guy named Ted Shin who was, who used to write a column called Hot Type in the Reader. And, and, and we, there were so many of us, we could ha have screenplays every month to present and to, and to kill people with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we did this for years. We even made a movie. Uh, my, my first uh, IMDB credit uh, comes from a movie I was music supervisor for that we made. I mean, and, and, and I got really involved. My first script, the only stories that came to me, came to me were, uh, jazz stories my first my first script uh was about fast waller being kidnapped by al capone something that something that kind of really happened and i just you know i had this story and i Is was that really the story you said to spike lee yes exactly exactly i was so lucky because i was in my business working for ramsey lewis terence blanchard was a guest i talked to him about it he said man send it to spike he gave it to me for some reason and Spike wrote me back and said, uh, I, I got the letter somewhere. Don't send period pieces to black folks. We ain't got no money. We ain't okay? got no money. <laughs> and, 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 but he told me it was good and he wanted to see what was next. The next three pieces were also historical fiction. I did not really like them, but I worked on them because I, I really wanted, and I had, I had some opportunities, things started happening. And my, my, my group finally told me to write something about myself. And I didn't think anything in my life was funny or worth writing about until, uh, until I realized there was a point in my life, Doris, this is a horrible story in many ways. I was stalked by a woman for 17 months. It was a horrible experience. 
And, and, and at this time, it's not different today. Today, that woman would have been arrested and gone out my life. But, but back then, cops didn't believe me. Cops, oh, dude, you can handle that or tell me what to do. Hit her or, or, or do, you know, all kinds of things. And it was horrible. Very few people, so many people saw it was funny. Not at the time did I. But, but three years later, when my people tell me, you know, to, to f write something about myself, I thought, wow, that was funny. And then, oh, that was funny. And I, and, I, and I created this story about me being stalked. And on a fluke, I sent it to the Sundance Screenwriting Competition, and I placed in the 2003 Sundance Screenwriting Competition. That's amazing. That's because it was authentic. You know, <laughs> well, who knows? But, uh, no, but and, you do write with a little fiction and nonfiction kind of blended together. But that's yes, the that, art form. That's, that's I don't know how it's, it's, I don't know how, but, but that was the impetus. When I look at your trilogy, I wonder whether, you know, you talk a lot about being a frustrated screenwriter. When I look at um, um, uh, the one that takes place in, in New Orleans um, and the one, well, oh, each of them, they're, they're very different in their structure and even in their tonality. <laughs> and I wonder, were you writing each for the screen? Like, are these three different movies? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> are you kidding? Are you, I love, that's another thing I like. Um, people say, God, it's so visual. It's so, you know, I took a lot of screenwriting rules, you know, get to the point. Yeah. That's a big thing in screenwriting. Get to the point. Um, also, you should know, it took 17 years, but three years I took off to write the screenplay to the second one. I, um, through, through uh, the film community in New York at Columbia University, I met a, a, a guy who worked for Zachary Quinto. He's an actor who, who was, he was Spock in Star Trek. He had a, I, oh, can't, yes, yes. I can't remember the name of his show, but he, but this guy, he, you talking about? he saw Around Midnight with the Ku Klux Klan. He was like, dude, this is a gay story. It's a baseball story. It's a black story. It's a jazz. It got everything you got. And so he offered me an option and I turned the option down. I was like, no, man, I want to write the screenplay. So they worked with me for, they worked with me for three years. They tried to get me fellowships. They tried to raise money. We worked. So, so I actually have a screenplay of the second story. And, and then when they quit calling, when they didn't raise money, I went back to writing the book. <laughs> well, that says something about it, that they offered you an option, because a lot of times, I mean, that they offered to help you after you turn the option down, because a lot of times they just say. Oh, no, know. no, but it's because I, because I volunteered to write the screenplay. That was like uh -huh. free, that was like free help to them. Free, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> sure, we'll give you an option. Uh, Mark, who are you mentoring? Whoa. Wow, what a question. Um, besides my youngest son, besides my middle son, wow. I, I have interns, intern, I'm very proud of the mentors I've had in the past. And, and that was a heavy question because, because right now, all I, I have, I tried to get interns. And in fact, gosh, Doris, that leads to a crazy story. So, I tried to get interns. That's where I can mentor. And, and the young musicians, there are many, there's many musicians that I help and try to give advice to. And some have, you know, uh, if, if, I, if I see a singer, I produce singers mostly because I feel like I can tell singers what to do. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my kind of real joke. Um, so so when, I, when I hear a singer I really like, you know, I try to go to them and find out where they're going what direction they're make, not making the same mistakes or what I, things I think they should do and see. So there are some young singers that, um, so, so now that I think about it, uh, Lauren Henderson is a, a very fine singer who, who I think considers me a mentor. Um, and, and, and there are a number of fine musicians that at least I try to sp spread knowledge to. But uh, there's a, a situation I just had, uh, where I had a string of interns bought to me and, and I had to pick and nobody picked the black intern who was from the University of Maryland. And, and when I got her, 
Um, what I'm trying to say is I made, I made the pick for blackness when, I sh when it wasn't the right pick that I needed and it was not the right thing to do. So it's hard to balance things too that way. So I, I do understand. And I and I didn't want to put you on this, didn't mean to put you on the spot that way, but what you're saying is so valid, right? Because you have to be guarded. Uh, so many people, you don't know what their motivations are for wanting to work with you, but when you're able to do that, you do. We are way over time. Thank you. I thank you for being so generous uh, with your time. Um, do you have any announcements? Give us the website where people can uh, go to. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, the, book, the book website is bebop.markruffin.com. Um, and, and the book is only available on Amazon. And, and uh, I'm planning on another book. I, I have book two, three, and four ready. I mean, in, in my head at least. <laughs> and, and, and the next book is, um, is going to be very interesting, I think, in that in researching for this book and I hired a researcher, I found out that every article I wrote for Indigo and every article I wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times is available and out there. And, and I want to collate those articles because that's a snapshot of time in Chicago. And I'm, I'm going to hook up with an artist whose name, who's well known in Chicago, I'm not going to say his name, and, and create this snapshot of a time in Chicago. So it's like a book that's already made. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, but what I really want, I really have an incredible fiction book, but then there's book number three, which is kind of the same thing, something that's going to be easy to do. So in more of a compilation. So I'm putting together these two compilations before I write my fourth fiction book. And I'll tease you with the name. It's called Obama on Rosedale. Obama on Rosedale. Ooh, intrigue. Intrigue. This is going to be great. What do you want to be remembered for? That I never held a gun in my life. Oh, oh, very interesting. Wish I could say I, the same. I wanted to shoot at seven. Uh, <laughs> um, I that that I that I produced three Superman boys. That love and peace was always in front. I, I and 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 that and that um, music 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 always protected me, and that music always protected me. Mark Ruffin, thank you for joining the Black Muse Podcast. Thank you, thank you for your questions, Doris. Thank you for real. Thank you. This was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Thank you, and we'll be in touch with you. We'd love to have you come and talk to the students via Zoom. We, we could talk about that, absolutely. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell Howard I say hey, okay, please. And and I'll Clarence. And Clarence, yes. I'll thank right. Clarence. I'll tell them both. Yes. And thank your wife for loaning you to us for this time. Yeah, oh, uh, she she said thank you for loaning her to me or loaning me to her because never mind. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, you bye. take care. Okay, bye. <laughs>